the payoffs on the other side are worth it, but that the price that you have to pay getting up to that point is so steep that a lot of people abandon hope and abandon their efforts before they ever get there. And they just give up this vicious cycle. The unhealthy default reality being our society, a place where the automatic default easy choices are mostly unhealthy ones. And if you go along with those choices, or you don't have the energy to fight them, you just end up in this downward spiral. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dachis-Marmet. We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Art of Living Well podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, we have a few exciting announcements for our podcast community. First of all, we're so excited to introduce the Art of Living Well Membership Tribe, which is our brand new premium membership for our community that we created for people like you who deserve to find your art of living well. We know how great you feel when you're taking care of yourself. The problem is this can be so hard to implement and sustain and we know how confusing it can be to figure out what your body needs to thrive. We will help you develop a roadmap and provide accountability as you move along your health and wellness journey to develop sustainable habits for life. We want you to feel amazing in your own skin and join our community of like-minded women. Um, for more information on this exciting new program, head on over to theartoflivingwell.us backslash programs. We also have some program details in our show notes, and we look forward to having you join us. We also have a favor of each of you. We want to ask that if you're enjoying this podcast, if you would just take two minutes to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us reach more people so others can benefit from the inspiring conversations and resources that we share each week. Thank you so much for your time. We also wanted to let you know that we have a free online workout guide which supports lots of small and female-owned businesses. You can find the link to download this guide in our show notes or on our Instagram profile. A few other updates. Stephanie and I have created an online sugar workshop called How to Have a Healthy Relationship with Sugar. And it's something that you can download and work through on your own. And you can find the link in our show notes or again on our Instagram profile. And lastly, we wanted to let you know that we have been hosting a room in our club on the audio app called Clubhouse. And we're typically hosting our room on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. And we talk about a variety of different topics. Um, the past few weeks, we've been talking about sugar and why it's so addicting and how to 
have a healthier relationship with sugar. And it's a really nice platform because you can actually interact with us, ask us questions. We love getting to know our listeners better. So if you need a re- an invitation, please reach out to us. It is an invite-only app at this time, and we would love to see you over on Clubhouse. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Pilar Gerasimo. She is an award-winning health journalist, pioneering social explorer, and author of a new book, The Healthy Deviant, A Rule Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World. She is best known for her work as founding editor of Experience Life magazine, which today reaches more than 3 million people with each issue. Pilar has also served as Chief Creative Officer for the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and as Top Health Editor for the Huffington Post. Pilar co-hosts a top-rated podcast called The Living Experiment. She speaks at universities, leads workshops at top retreat centers, and consults for organizations committing to transforming health and happiness around the globe. When Pilar's not traveling, she hides out on an organic communal family farm in Wisconsin with her goofy pit bull named Calvin. During our conversation, we talk about what is a healthy deviant and what does it mean to actually be one and to continually break the social norms in order to be healthy. We also discuss our relationship with our inner critic and how we can foster a non-judgmental life and really start to experiment with making different choices. We just loved talking with Pilar and we felt like we could have kept chatting with her for hours. But before we dive into our conversation, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor who helps make this podcast possible weekly. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, Appetite for Change. Appetite for Change is a nonprofit in North Minneapolis that uses food as a tool for health, wealth, and social change. This year, in light of COVID and the unrest in Minneapolis, Appetite for Change has continued to ground themselves in their mission and center their work around community connection and nourishing food. They launched a pilot program called Community Cooks Meal Boxes, which provides fresh produce and pantry items plus two recipes for over 300 families at no cost to the family. The program has been such a success that it has been extended for another six weeks and will continue into 2021. AFC has utilized the kitchens of their two restaurants, Breaking Bread Cafe and Station 81, to produce over 200,000 meals that have been distributed across the Twin Cities to healthcare workers, seniors, and families in need. In addition, they have seven farm plots across North Minneapolis that are tended to by community members and Appetite for Change youth learning how to grow a variety of plants. These fresh fruits and vegetables are distributed throughout the North Side. Even in 2021, Appetite for Change is committed to building a more equitable food system by delivering fresh and nourishing food to healthcare workers, seniors, and families in need, tending urban gardens and more. We have been collaborating with Appetite for Change over this past year, and we have loved their dedication to their mission, and we so look forward to volunteering with their organization and working with them more in 2021. To learn more about Appetite for Change, listen to episode 31 of our podcast with one of their founders, Michelle Horowitz. For more information or to donate, head on over to appetiteforchangemn.org backslash impact 
or on Instagram and Facebook at Appetite for Change. Welcome, Pilar. We are both so incredibly excited to have you here today. I think we've both been following you since you started Experience Life magazine. Um, and that is still one of my favorite magazines to date, and I know Stephanie's as well. And I remember when you wrote your column, I would always enjoy reading it and hearing about your life. Um, when I was recently speaking to an old classmate of mine, she offered to make an introduction, and I was so excited. Um, so here we are today, and um, I think we have way more questions for you than we have time for, so we're going to dive right in. Um, and we're really excited to hear all about your new book, The Healthy Deviant, A Rule Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World. <laughs> so um, maybe to begin, I know everyone has so many stories, and We'd love to hear from you your journey from growing up on a farm in Wisconsin to how you came into the world of health journalism and how that has really changed and enriched your life as a lifelong health seeker. Mm, thank you so much. First of all, how lovely to be with you. It's just, I, I always feel like so honored to show up on other people's podcasts. And I'm really glad our mutual friend Jackie was kind enough to introduce us. Um, my story, thank you for your interest, is in some ways, I think a lot like everybody's story, which is that I started out as a pretty healthy little baby, uh, if you're lucky to start out as a healthy baby, which most of us are. And then I lost my health and fitness through the course of my later childhood and adolescence and young adulthood, and then spent the better part of my 20s and 30s trying to get it back. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the farm. I was born in uh, Illinois, where my dad was a professor at Lake Forest College, and I grew up in sort of the inception of the positive psychology and human potential movement, where people were really thinking interesting they're asking interesting questions about how do we live better lives? How do we become our best selves? And I was formed in that, that context by a father who was a sociologist and a mother who was even then kind of a back to the land earth mother type. Um, and my mom was really interested in raising her children in an environment much like the one that she had been raised in a, on a farm in the Midwest. My dad was a very urban uh, intellectual academic type who was born in Chicago, Gary, Indiana area. And he really wasn't so into the farm thing but I always had two lives, one in the country, one in the city. And growing up on the farm where my mom started kind of a hippie commune back in 1970 with a, her best friend, we had this very organic kind of yeah, back to the land life with we made our own food, our own clothes, our own houses out of recycled materials. Every day was you know, getting up with the sun and going to bed when it got dark. We didn't have a television. There really wasn't any junk food or soda or any of that stuff allowed. And I was raised as a pretty healthy kid and I was I thought pretty healthy and happy until I went to school. And when I started going to grade school, I started getting very clear messages that the way my sisters and I were was considered very weird. We wore hand-me-down clothes. We brought our own lunches with homemade bread and leftovers and things that were considered to be abnormal. At the time, everyone had Wonder Bread sandwiches, bologna and single sliced cheese and Twinkies or dessert. And people brought cans of pop. And we were like, wow, what, what's going on here? 
So like most kids, you know, we figured out and I in particular figured out that I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be different that way. Um, and I got very occupied with trying to fit in and measure up and show up as other people were presenting themselves. And as I saw increasingly when I got older in women's magazines, the models that were held out of how I was supposed to look and dress and act and what I was supposed to have and care about. And so what I found is, again, I think this is common to many of us, is that the more I tried to comply and conform with those models, the less healthy and happy I got. So as I became less healthy and less happy, I started missing my health and fitness and realizing, you know, it was not fun to be gaining weight, mostly as the result of going on yo-yo diets and messing up my formerly healthy metabolism. It wasn't fun to lose my fitness, mostly because I was now sitting and watching television and, you know, not being outside and doing active things. And it really wasn't fun to be losing my own peace of mind and my self-confidence, which was what was happening as I was getting sucked in to the dominant culture ideals of what a woman was supposed to look like and be like and act like. I felt like I knew myself less and less and I had less and less confidence of you know, what I was gonna be when I grew up and um, that my life was worthwhile. And I was looking outside myself for all of my affirmation. And it's a longer story, but the short version of it is that I suddenly had this realization one day when um, I was in my early 30s. And actually, I'd already started the magazine Experience Life, I think, in 2001. And this was maybe a year or two after that, where the crucible of trying to do all of the things I thought I had to do to be healthy, like, you know, eat all of the right foods and be in all the right exercise programs and do all the right stuff, combined with the workload that I was carrying, trying to start a magazine from scratch and edit it and make it happen, became overwhelming. And one day I was so upset with myself and my life and the fact that I couldn't do it all and be it all. I stomped my foot on the floor of my house so hard that I broke the bone in my foot. And it's a story I tell in the book in greater length, but I had, as a result of that experience, a, a series of insights. Um, and the first of them was just an awareness that I had broken my body in a way that terrified me, like that I was capable of, you know, stomping my foot and breaking my own bone, that I had that much frustration and pent up rage inside of me. And I was able and willing to direct it at myself. That level of self-destructiveness was not something that I considered myself even capable of. And I was like, that was a sobering moment. The other things that I realized were that actually had been breaking myself for a long time. And when I look back, and maybe you guys can relate to this, but I look back at the 10 years leading up to that incident, and there were all kinds of warning signals and flares that I was living out of balance. Even after I figured out things like eating whole foods and you know started an exercise program that was more sustainable, I had rashes, I had night sweats, I had digestive trouble, I had back aches and stomach aches and all kinds of weird little niggling strange symptoms. My, body's, my body was trying to tell me like you're overrunning your ability to, to maintain this, you are overrunning your reserves. So that was the beginning for me of a turnaround experience where I also realized like I wasn't alone that almost all of my friends, particularly my women friends were suffering from a lot of these maladies. And we were all running to doctors, sometimes you know, to Chinese medicine doctors, sometimes to integrative medicine doctors, herbalists, homeopaths, regular doctors, but we just kept accumulating more and more sort of short-term interventions for these things. And I decided, if I was going to be a healthy person, I needed to figure out how to do it in the context of a world 
which was not going to support me in doing that. And I couldn't look to the conventional models anymore. I had to kind of figure it out through trial and error. So I spent the better part of you know the rest of my life, really, ever since then, I've been experimenting with how to be a healthier person in a world that often makes that very, very difficult indeed. That's a lot of what went into experience life in the next two decades after that. Wow. I love hearing your story. I love hearing you tell it. I think in the book, I loved learning more from what I already kind of knew high level through reading experience life. Um, And I know that just in and of itself is going to inspire so many people because I think I fully agree with you, Pilar, especially women. We want to do everything. We think we have to do everything, especially those of us that are parents and those little warning signs that we have that we just push to a side and put a bandaid on and, at some point, something breaks, you know, your foot breaks, there was a reason because you weren't listening to your body for all those years, and it was giving you the small little cues. Now it's like, sorry, this is what we have to do to get you to wake up. That's exactly Uh, right. And your story is just so relatable. I mean, you know, we all, I think many of us went through that, you know, in grade school or junior high or whatever, where you're just trying to change yourself to fit in. And then you finally figure it out that that's not true to who you are. And I mean, even like the rashes, all of it, I I can relate to it all. Yeah. I can't tell you how often I hear back from people that are like, oh, I had that rash, you know, I had perioral dermatitis or I was losing my eyebrows or my eyelashes or picking at my fingernails or doing whatever it is that we do, pulling our hair out the top of our head, which a lot of, these are coping mechanisms. Um, They're, they're sort of self soothing mechanisms, even though they're not all that soothing. And I think what they are is, you know, our way of trying to endure the unendurable that our lives have become, you know, we are a living experiment and this, I have a podcast called The Living Experiment all about this, but it's easy to forget that the way we are living right now is not at all normal relative to the way that humans were living for the 2.5 million years during which all of our DNA formed and all of our central nervous system formed and all of our metabolic preferences formed. So we took our genetic programming and we thrust it into this, you know, post-agricultural revolution world where, you know, the agricultural revolution led to the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, the digital revolution, all of the things that came with it, like processed food and electric lights and lives changed by automation. But here we are in these bodies that still have the basic programming of hunter-gatherer ancestors trying to make sense of the world we're living in now and all of the media and advertising. And so I think, you know, we need to be, um, we need to be cautious about holding ourselves up to these standards that we have not yet proven are in any way, shape or form wise or sustainable standards. We're just going along with right now what we glean from some combination of advertising and media and social media and what we see our friends trying to do. And we're all really showing the signs of strain, if not severe breakdown. Um, When you start to see how many of your friends are dealing with autoimmune diseases, heart disease, cancer, type two diabetes, uh, anxiety and depression, those are diagnosed disorders or conditions or diseases, but they're really the reflection of a whole bunch of us trying to live in ways that are not sustainable, that are really not endurable. And we can continue to do things like get blue blocking sunglasses and gravity blankets and fidget spinners and, you know, Humira to try to suppress the symptoms of our dis-ease, 
But the truth is, I think we are going to rapidly come to the conclusion that we do need to shift the way we're living to be more in agreement with the way our bodies have been programmed to operate, or we're going to be paying a very, very heavy price, which we already are, you know, both economically and socially, and at a level of just human suffering. The, the price, I think, is too high, and that's a lot of why I do the work I do. I want to kind of wake people up to that and have people stop beating themselves up for the not having a bikini body, goodness gracious, <laughs> but also just like waking up sometimes in the morning and going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't want anybody else to stomp their foot in a fit of frustration. And I don't want anybody else running to the doctor for more antidepressants, thinking there's something terribly wrong with them. I mean, take the antidepressants, goodness, please take them if it's going to help you save your life or stay you know, in a space where you can then go get some additional help or make some additional choices. But right now, a lot of the drugs that we're taking, it, they are taken in the service of, I think, enduring the unendurable. And that's not a great long-term strategy. And I know you dive into a lot of this in your book. So maybe we can focus a little bit on that. You know, one of the things you talked about and you mentioned today for writing this book is currently we live in a culture that produces more unhealthy, unhappy people than healthy and happy ones. Uh, and if you're currently a healthy and happy person in today's United States of America, or really in any of the number of growing countries um, that are following our lead, you represent a tiny and shrinking minority and are statistically speaking an endangered species, which is such a powerful statement. So can we dive into this a little bit further? Um, yes. I mean, we can even talk about, you know, what is a healthy deviant, you know, because I love that <laughs> word. And I love, I love, I mean, I am very proud to say I am a healthy deviant. I think Marnie would say the same thing as well. Um, <laughs> it's just so, it's, just, it's a, such a wonderful book. So Thank if you want to dive into that a little bit further. Yeah, well, I always, you know, it's, thank you so much for sharing that little passage, because I think it does a great job of explaining um, kind of the fundamental principle behind healthy deviance. I'll give you some statistics to explain why factually, the, the idea of healthy deviance makes sense. <clears throat> right now in the United States, we know because some of the COVID reporting made this such a popularized number that in my book, I said 50% or more, but it's now 60% or more of US adults have been diagnosed with at least one chronic disease. So right out of the gate, more than half of us have been diagnosed chronically ill. So you're already in the minority if you have not been. Then leave aside the diagnosed disorders, 70% of people are taking prescription drugs on a regular basis, sometimes a daily basis in order to manage chronic symptoms or they're taking them preventatively kind of like statins and things are being given to people by the you know millions of, of um, doses in order to manage again, the symptoms of our dis-ease. So 70% taking regularly prescription drugs. And by the time you're 65, you're actually likely to be taking five or more of them on a daily basis. And the interactions of those drugs are often very challenging and difficult things to predict. 70%, okay, so now we're up to the numbers, 68 to 70% are also overweight or obese. And that comes with a long list of additional disease risks and dysregulations um, for like hormones and blood sugar and inflammation and things like that. And then 80% of us aren't thriving mentally and emotionally. So at a psychological level, only 20% of people are, are thriving and the rest of us are just getting by, or as the psychological research Barbara Fredrickson says, they're living lives of quiet despair. 
This again explains more of our physical symptoms because when you're stressed out and freaked out or depressed, you have a whole bunch of physical manifestations that come along with that. The body and mind can't be disconnected. Then this is the number that kind of blew my mind and really fused for me that healthy deviance was a necessity. 97.3% of US adults are not regularly practicing the most basic healthy habits that they would need to practice in order to stay healthy and happy for the long haul. So this is data that was reported in the Mayo Clinic proceedings and it suggested that I think 97.3% of US adults are not doing the following things eating a reasonably healthy diet, getting a moderate amount of exercise, not smoking, and maintaining a reasonable body composition. I can go in and debate some of this, you know, data that they used around that with like USDA nutrition guidelines, which are not my favorite standard and so on. But basically 97.3% of US adults cannot sustainably do those four things or are not doing them. And that means less than a single, you know, a single digit percentage of people, two point some, are doing those things. But what we don't know is whether they're doing any of the other things that you'd need to do, like getting enough sleep or maintaining healthy social connections or managing their stress at a reasonable level or avoiding toxins or getting enough daylight. So there's a long list of things that science suggests are at least as important, if not more important than the things that were counted in that research I noted earlier. And so you have to ask the question, well, if fewer than 3% of people are doing the things that they did count, how many could possibly be doing all of those things plus the other half dozen, you know, that you might need to do really at a base level. And I can't believe that it's more than 1%, but for sure it's, we know it's a single digit. And then you have to ask the question, okay, well, what kind of society produces that result? What kind of society makes it so hard to be healthy and happy that literally almost nobody can pull it off, fewer than you know a couple percentage points at max. So there's something significantly wrong here, but the, the takeaway here is that if you are one of the few people who is thriving and happy and healthy and on track to stay that way, yeah, you are basically a freak. I mean, you statistically speaking, you are such an outlier and such an oddball. And you have to be doing things so much differently than everybody else. Socially, you will become unusual enough to be seen as a, as a deviant, a social deviant. It's a positive form of deviance, at least I like to think so. <laughs> We'd all like to be healthier and happier, but it comes with same, the same types of costs as any type of social deviation. Just like when I was saying I was in grade school and I started, I was came, showed up doing things and acting and looking a little different. I got told very clearly that that was not acceptable. And if you choose to try to pursue a healthy life in the context of today's expectations, you'll run up against a lot of those same kinds of obstacles and social pressures. Yeah, I mean, I, Stephanie and I are both, you know, could be considered, I guess, healthy deviants. And I, I love the way that you put it out there. And I love the idea. I actually love the idea of continually breaking social norms to be healthy. <laughs> Um, you say normal is overrated. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I do feel the stairs regularly, you know, in a restaurant when I'm ordering food or even around family, like my, my, my little family of five, they know how I eat, but like my extended family, you know, oh, Marnie, she, it's always, you know, Marnie's going to eat her special food or mm. whatever it is. So I, I feel that. And, and it's sad that, um, 
you know, the 1% or whatever the number is of people that are, are trying to live this healthy lifestyle have to feel, you know, exactly what you're describing. Um, and, and have to work so hard at it, you know, and, right. and it, not only are you going through the expense, the inconvenience, you know, all of the time and, <laughs> uh, and money challenges associated with that and having to exert quite a lot of your own willpower or willingness in some cases to do that, but you are then coming against the social pressures and, you know, in communities where there aren't, uh, there's not good access to healthy food. It sometimes those choices are so difficult, um, or there isn't green space to exercise safely outside, or you know the social pressures are even greater against doing those kinds of things. I'm thinking, for example, of you know women in some Middle Eastern cultures what they need to be wearing and where they're supposed to be going or not going is a limiting factor in how much exercise they can get during the course of their normal lives. So there are a lot of social and cultural factors that determine your chances, your life chances, as well as your health chances. And one thing I think a lot of people don't realize until they've gotten to the point of healthy deviance that you folks have, is that the payoffs on the other side are worth it, but that the price that you have to pay getting up to that point is so steep that a lot of people abandon hope and abandon their efforts before they ever get there. And they just give up. You know, I talk in my book about this vicious cycle of um, the unhealthy default reality. The unhealthy default reality being our society, a place where the automatic default easy choices are mostly unhealthy ones. And if you go along with those choices, or you don't have the energy to fight them, you just end up in this downward spiral. And then you end up with problems like obesity or rashes or headaches or diagnosed disease states, or you know just not feeling very well, where you begin to incorporate more and more of the solutions, I put finger quotes around those, that our society then presents you with you know, pills and powders and yo-yo diets and crazy unsustainable workouts. And when you start trying to do those things, they don't work as advertised. And you start to suffer from that feeling of like, I'm doing this, but it's not working, or I'm trying to do this and I can't do it. And that takes you further down the spiral. Now you feel helpless and hopeless and you're beating up on yourself. And eventually a lot of people just give up. You know, they end up in this horrible state that uh, psychologists call learned helplessness, which is when you've tried so many times to escape some place of discomfort or trouble and you can't get out of it. You just give up trying and you resign yourself to a certain level of suffering. And I do really think that, you know, the society we're living in now has made it normal to be suffering from a fleet of different disorders. And a lot of doctors will tell you, you know, at my age, I'm 54. Um, if I went to the doctor with a set of complaints like the ones that I had before, they probably would tell me that I, um, you know, it's just, I'm getting older. When they would tell me, you know, this is a, a relatively common condition for women your age. We see this a lot. It's, or, or that's a benign condition. I once had a condition known as a geographic tongue where I was getting like basically holes in my tongue. And I had more than one doctor tell me it was a benign condition. And I'm like, it is not benign. When your tongue is falling apart, there's something seriously wrong. And you can tell me it's normal for people of my age. Or it's like, we don't know why it happens. But to me, it's a clear sign my body is not happy about something. So, um, so 
the fact that you guys identify as healthy deviants thrills me. And I know there are more of us out there. And I think it's really important for us to figure out how we can make it easier for ourselves and for each other and all of the folks we have never even met to come along for the ride. It, it can't be this hard and still work for the majority of human beings on this planet. So we have to make it easier. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And one of the things I just kept thinking about is if we had a community and if there were these communities that exist out there in pockets, then people wouldn't feel like they were all alone. They That's would right. feel supported. They would feel like even more self-confident in making the choices that they know they want to make. But when the pressures are around you or mounting, yes. we just cave in. And it goes back to when you were, you know, when you went to school, when you were five or six and you felt that you weren't considered, you know, normal or the things that you were doing, your lifestyle. And so of course you want to fit in even today as adults, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, people still want to fit in and they want to be part of something. And if they can feel part of a community that also is doing these things to support a healthier lifestyle, yes. but, you know, but that's a lot, that's a big undertaking, obviously. And I know that's why that's what this book. And I know you have your program that you're running is all kind of trying to support, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, you know, for me, one thing I realized in editing Experience Life magazine is that there are communities of people that sort of co-locate around existing structures like, you know, yoga studios or gyms or food co-ops or libraries or, you know, CSAs. So you can find people, you can find your people through those existing structures, but it is really helpful philosophically to be connected with people who are taking a bigger view of what healthy living really means and seeing it in the context of our society and our culture and who are aware that the social influences are a really big part of this. It isn't just a choice to be healthy. It's a challenge. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, it was funny, I was giving a talk for the University of Minnesota's Center for Spirituality and Healing when my book first came out, which was now, it's just a year ago. It seems like such a long year <laughs> with the pandemic and everything else that's <laughs> happened. Uh, but I remember someone in the audience of the talk was like, wow, you are speaking my language. Like, is there a community? Is there a place for us to connect? And at the time I hadn't yet started this Healthy Deviant like private Facebook group. But when I did, probably six months later, I was like, oh, maybe I should just do this. Like 2000 people came in faster than I would have ever predicted. And there really are enjoying, even in a virtual community, connecting with each other and supporting each other and sharing their observations about how the culture is working on them or against them. Um, there's a manifesto in the book of Healthy Deviance. I won't go into the whole thing, but one of the, the points is to to call out the crazy. And it's really been fun to see people in that community posting, you know, examples of crazy making ads or messages. Someone posted in the group the other day, a Hallmark greeting card for children that had a picture of like a hamburger and fries on it. And that were like, you know, we're better together. And it's, you know, you know, textbooks in kids' schools are full of that. Like how many candy bars does it take to fill up this candy jar? And it's like subtle programming or, you know, bikini body um, ideals of body beauty and so on. So when you start to group with other people who are seeing that kind of crazy and pointing it out and being willing to disrupt the accepted norms and expectations of our society in the service of their own health and happiness and in the service of supporting each other, 
it does start to feel more normal, you know, like a new normal, a better normal. And, um, and, and Healthy Deviant You, which is the program I've put together, uh, is a way of getting people together for the span of at least 12 weeks, but ideally more like a year or more where they can travel in a cohort together going through four phases of healthy deviance where they can begin to raise their awareness. So one of the non-conformist competencies of amplified awareness is um, amplified awareness, which is noticing what's going on in and around you and just helping to re-educate people to pay attention to the signals their bodies are sending them, for example, is a huge aha for people, noticing what triggers their unhealthy cravings or less healthy choices, noticing when they become reactive and upset and it starts to affect their energy or hope, helping them then to reclaim that. The second nonconformist competency of healthy deviance is preemptive repair. So we spend a full 12 weeks on that. And we're in this phase right now with the first cohort. And it's just so gorgeous to see people encouraging each other to take breaks and to do little kind things for themselves and to renegotiate their agreements in ways that work better for them. So a lot of Healthy Deviant You and the other you know, programs that I run are really aimed at that. Like how do we create community and support from each other in order to make these healthy choices and attitudes and behaviors easier over time? And ideally to make them more a new version of normal that's more sustainable and rewarding for all of us. I love that. That's wonderful because sometimes it is hard to find, you know, like Stephanie and I, we work together. So it's really nice that we can constantly bounce off each other ideas and, you know, we're both super healthy. So it's really nice to have that. But like, I definitely have some good friends and, you know, I could go over to their home and I'm getting pushed to, you know, drink a lot of alcohol and eat a bunch of junk and whatever. And I'm usually always the ones, you know, saying I'll just have a bite or whatever it is, but it's how it's uncomfortable, right? Like it's uncomfortable. (laughs) It is. It It is. is. And you say everybody is trying to figure it out. And and I get, you know, I because I have been there. And from time to time I still get there. You know, I want to be honest. Like for me, part of being a healthy deviant is acknowledging that you don't have to be perfect all the time, but it's like noticing when you get on that slippery slope and you're headed downhill and you're like, I need to practice some self-arrest here, or I'm going to (laughs) go down into this place. I don't want to be, I've been there. don't want to go back, but trying to navigate that space where you can have what you want to have when you want to have it, but also know the impact that it has on you. And Mm -hmm. even in the face of you're hanging out with someone, who's in a difficult place or trying to survive by the means that they know. And for a lot of people, particularly this last year, drinking more has been one of the ways that people sort of self-soothe or self-anesthetize or numb out when they just can't take it anymore. Or we've been in back-to-back Zoom meetings for 12 hours and you're just like, I can't even deal with this anymore. So you know, eating sort of comfort foods and junk foods and drinking more or zoning out and binging Netflix or escaping into romance novels or whatever it is that you do. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it isn't going to serve you for the long term. What it is, is an indication that you've overrun your available resources and you're desperately now in need of repair, recovery, replenishment, rebalancing, re-regulation, 
But if you live in a society that doesn't really help you do that or actually actively stands in the way of you doing that by telling you you should be able to do more, you know, if when you're, I actually, one of the things, um, my sister Louisa actually posted in the other day in the call out the crazy mode was a little like Fitzbo type Instagram post that said, you know, don't stop when you're tired. And then in a little print, it said, stop when you're done. And that's the message that we're sending out as an aspirational, inspirational message to people. Like, I don't want that magnet on my refrigerator, <laughs> but there are people who are living by that credo because they've been trained and programmed to do it. So yeah, drinking and eating junk food is like the, the, the closest thing to comfort and you know a reward for their, the misery they've been experiencing. And you know, that's a lot of what healthy deviance is, is shifting perspectives away from that set of strategies and encouraging people to experiment with approaches that actually do rebuild and replenish them and getting out of the patterns and ruts that are eating away at them even more. Because what I see when I look around is, you know, you, you've probably seen this too, right? Like friends that you saw 10 years ago, and you see them again and you're like, well, we've all aged, right? And we're all like, oh my God. But you know, you're like, wow. You know, you can see the results of trying to persist with the strategies that that person has, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's showing and they're feeling it. And I don't want to say we should all walk around judging each other. I want to say we should all walk around having empathy for each other, because this is not because that person is stupid and weak-willed or not as good as any one of us. That's because this person hasn't had access to the skills and strategies and support that are required to do the difficult thing, the nearly impossible thing of choosing to be a healthy person in an unhealthy world that is constantly making that more difficult than it needs to be. And now we will take a quick break from this episode to hear a word from our sponsor. Have you been thinking about a new home build, remodel, or even rework of a smaller space in your home? We have all spent more time in our homes over the past year, and many people are trying to recreate spaces in their homes to bring more joy and functionality to fit their lifestyles. It can be really hard to know where to turn, but Sarah and Marcy, co-founders of Chisel Architecture, are the experts that will help you gain clarity and confidence around your project. One of the unique aspects of Chisel Architecture that sets them apart from others is their trademark design approach called Pattern of Life. This approach is a game changer for homeowners and how they experience the design process. Marcy and Sarah really listen to you to fully understand your needs and advocate for you during both the design and implementation process. When you think about your home environment and how it supports you, Chisel Architecture believes your overall well-being should be in the mix. Sarah and Marcy want you to live well in your home. Because they are so passionate on their design approach, they have a special offer for our listeners. Book a two-hour consultation and receive $50 off. Simply email them at hello at chiselarc.com. That's at H-E-L-L-O at C-H-I-S-E-L-A-R-C-H dot com and mention the Art of Living Well podcast to receive your $50 off. Consultations must be booked by June 30th to take advantage of this offer. And I think one, th one thought that I had when you were talking about like the Facebook group and the community is 
you know, up-leveling people so that they can advocate for themselves. So when they do go to the doctor and they just say, oh, just take this pill or, um, or you're, you're just aging and this is normal life, that you can say no, you know, that you have a little bit of knowledge and that you have that insight to say something's not right and advocate for yourself, whether that's in yeah. a doctor's office or with your friends or family or whatever. And I think that's yes. something that kind of came across to me. I have what you're saying, which is what you're doing. Yeah. Advocacy. And, and I think discernment, you know, is the other piece that if you're, you know, it's kind of like looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, if what you want is progressive support for lifestyle change that, you know, in your heart is what is necessary for you to get healthier, probably going to most conventional doctors for that counsel is not going to produce a satisfying solution. Mm -hmm. Most conventionally trained physicians are really expert at managing things like infectious diseases and acute injuries and cat catastrophic health crises. They're great at supporting um, you through a thing like a heart attack or something. Most of them are suffering from all of the same maladies though that we're going to them with like stress, inflammation, you know, imbalances of various kinds. And they're taking a lot of drugs to manage those themselves. So, you know, I, if I break my arm, I'm going directly to a hospital to have one of those conventionally trained docs help me figure that out. But when I notice that a little rash that started to have a while ago is starting to come back, or I notice you know, my eyes aren't as clear and they're starting to look kind of dingy, or I notice that my digestion is a little off or something in my lower back is kind of bad because I've been sitting too much. I know if I go to the doctor, I'm going to come away with a cream or a pill or a powder or a prescription for physical therapy or something, but it isn't going to change the, the circumstances that produced those problems. And I've learned, you know, to surround myself with other wise health seekers. And I always say, you kind of need a posse of healers and health coaches and um, guides to help you figure out these different pieces of healthy life. Um, but it does begin with listening and noticing to your own body and advocating even to yourself that you're worthy of intervention and care and support that's required for you to change your life for the long haul. And, and it's also, it's so hard because some people maybe don't have the means to get the access to all these healers. Yes. And I, my heart goes out to those people because I do think a lot of people go to the doctor and like you said, they walk away with a prescription or a cream or whatever, and they never get to that underlying root issue. And yeah. it's just kind of slapping a bandaid on the problem. And yes. so, you know, the idea of creating a community that is at least giving people more ideas on how to even address their issues is wonderful. Yes. Yes, it's really true. You know, I think um, this past year has been so interesting to, you know, particularly in Minnesota after George Floyd's death, George Floyd's murder, I should say, is I've really become more aware of how in communities of color, for example, there has been such limited access to recovery from, you know, lifelong traumas and um, the challenges of being constantly surrounded by stressors that are beyond your control and seem, you know, to be in disproportionately visited on communities of color and low-income communities that access to healers, access to healing support, access to systems and programs and information that would help to turn that tide. It, it has been too limited and it's affecting all of us. I mean, this is a problem. I interviewed um, 
an amazing healer and therapist named Resma Manicum on the podcast, um, The Living Experiment, back in 2019. Um, and he talked a lot about how much trauma we all carry from this set of injustices and imbalances and um, uh, it, it just the, the way that our society is set up isn't working really very well for any of us. Even those of us who feel like we're like doing pretty well by comparison to everybody else, we all experience the suffering and the drag that is created on our society by having so many people needlessly suffering and unfairly suffering from circumstances, you know, that date back in our history, many hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, but now, that we're moving, I hope, into an era where we recognize that there needs to be, in the Minnesota Healing Justice um, group has a great phrase, or, or my friend Ihotu is a, um, her name's Ihotu Ali. She's a amazing healer in her own right, but also helped to form this Minnesota Healing Justice Network. And they talk about the, the healing and justice and the justice and healing. And I love this idea that they really go together. It isn't just, to have 97.3% of the US adult population suffering the consequences of ill health and suffering against the influences that are constantly oppressing their health and happiness. But it's also really not fair that people with less money, people of color, people from other cultures, people in neighborhoods and circumstances that are even more difficult than the average US adult situation are suffering at rates that are disproportionately high um, it's, that is not good for anybody. And I think that's one of my passions these days. It's like, how can we connect more with each other to share what we have and know and to learn more about the circumstances of people whose challenges in getting and staying healthy are even greater than our own? I love that, absolutely. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Yes. And it's, it's, you know, it seems like a big undertaking, but I do feel like each of us can play a small role in that to start to make some real change and movement. And if anything, that's been a, a silver lining of all of 2020 and what we've all gone through and kind of touched on today. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit in the book, you talk about renegade rituals quite a bit. Can you talk about like, tell us a little bit, what are renegade rit rituals? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, actually, it's a great segue because um, in thinking about, you know, the, the very long, long, long list of things that one quote unquote should do to be a healthier, happier person, I think most of us feel overwhelmed by, you know, all of the food things and all of the exercise things and all of the stress management things and so on. So I really focused on like, what were the biggest impact, highest octane easiest return things that I learned to do that made all of those other healthy, healthy choices easier. Um, and it came down to three daily, what I call renegade rituals, each of which happily don't cost a lot of money or special equipment or the things anybody can do. It, they can take some doing to figure out. But the first one is called the morning minutes practice. And it's my favorite way to start because it only takes three minutes and it's something you do first thing in the morning before the rest of your life has kind of gotten its grip on you. The idea is that when you wake up, you take the first three minutes of your day before you pick up your phone, before you get into your computer or the news or social media, or even into a conversation with another person, ideally, and you just allow your body to come to waking gradually by doing or experiencing something that is a low key, calm, enjoyable activity. 
and it can be anything you want. It doesn't have to be meditation or yoga. It could be, but like on different days, I do different things. I wake up and I do, I play my guitar or I light a candle almost every morning. I light a beeswax candle and I just like look at the candle and then look outside. Sometimes I walk outside and listen to the birds chirp, play my guitar. The only rule is that I spend the first three minutes doing something that's just for me and allows my body and mind to come to waking gradually. That's really important for a bunch of scientific reasons, like your theta state and your brain waves moving from sleeping to waking. But without all that science and the technology of that, I will tell you that if you experiment with the practice, you will probably love it. I've never met a person who's tried it who hasn't been like, wow, that is a much better way to wake up and now I feel really different. Using those three minutes for your own benefit somehow gets your day off to a different start that makes other healthy choices easier. I think it also helps you realize how rare it is to have the experience of being in your own skin and not being distracted or pushing to get something done or feeling a sense of urgency and having everything go scattered in your mind and body as a result. So the second renegade ritual then is called ultradian rhythm breaks. And these are 20 minute breaks that you take ideally every hour and a half to two hours. But to begin with, I encourage people to take one mid morning and one mid afternoon, assuming that they have a lunch break, which often serves as a kind of ultradian rhythm break. The term ultradian, like ultra, dan, ultradian, means like many times a day. And it's much like a circadian rhythm operates on a 24 hour cycle. You know, you've got a cycle of waking and a cycling of sleep, a cycle of sleeping uh, and a cycle of productivity and a cycle of recovery. The same thing actually happens in our bodies many times a day. We just tend to fight it and not pay attention to the energy variation, right? So everything in our bodies and our minds operate on this very interesting oscillating cycle of up and down, up and down. If you think about your heart rate, for example, right? Your heart beats on a very particular rhythm. Your eyes tend to blink on a particular rhythm. Your brain, your sinus rhythms operate on a particular set of waves and rhythms. But we've been trained in this culture that we should get up in the morning, go, 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 and then somehow magically drop off into perfect sleep at the end of the day. <laughs> and our bodies hate that. It doesn't work at all. But what happens is that in reality, what happens is that you get up in the morning and you start building up productivity and you get into your high focus mode and then your body starts to accumulate all of the byproducts of that productivity. Much like a car going down the road has exhaust coming out the back, you going down the road of your day produces metabolic waste and cellular debris and neurosynaptic snippets that you don't really know what to do with. And when you start to feel fatigued, usually around mid morning, the first time, an hour and a half, two hours after you start the productive part of your day, it's your body's way of getting you to take a break. It's getting you, to, it's, it's sending you fatigue messages because it needs time to reset and recover and rebalance. But we don't let it do that. We fight that instinct and we go for more coffee or sugar or cigarettes, or we try to like pump ourselves up for the next big thing and just get through to lunch or just get through the day. And as we go through the day, it just gets worse. If you can take the break, what will happen is that your energy will come back up with or without coffee, with or without sugar, ideally without. <laughs> and then you experience another 90 to 120 minutes of high energy and good mood and good focus. But we have been you know, trained in our culture the, to think of taking breaks as a sign of weakness and we don't take them. And what happens is that our energy peaks throughout the day get lower and lower until you've I'm sure had this experience by mid afternoon, you're a mess. 
and you're exhausted and you're grumpy and you're inflamed and you're starting to think about food and drinks. And that's what happy hour is, is basically a very delayed <laughs> ultradian rhythm break. <laughs> and if you can get out ahead of it and rest before you're exhausted and you know eat and drink before you're famished and, and dehydrated, people will find their energy works a lot better. And they also end up sleeping better at night. So um, eating healthier, making healthier food choices and balancing blood sugar actually is very related to these ultradian rhythm breaks. So that's the second one. And then the third one is sort of the opposite of the morning minutes practice. It's a nightly wind down or a nighttime wind down. And that's a more extended period of usually 30 to 45 minutes where I recommend just taking everything down, decelerating your speed, taking the volume in your space down, taking the intensity down, taking the temperature, lowering your thermostat down. And as you begin to lower the lights, the temperature, the intensity, the volume, you start sending your body and your mind deceleration signals. So instead of go, 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 you're now sending it the message to like slow down, slow down, slow down. And it prepares your body for sleep in ways. I can't tell you how many people in my programs have said, I just got the first decent night of sleep I've had in years. And I'm like, it's a miracle, I guess, but not really. <laughs> it's just getting into agreement with the way your body actually is designed to work. So um, it's really, those are the very most simple explanations of the three renegade rituals, but I, I love talking about them and I love sharing them. And if folks want to learn more about them, obviously I write about them in the book. I teach them in Healthy Deviant U, but there are three episodes of the podcast um, that are great to listen to, to learn how to do these. This is the Living Experiment podcast at livingexperiment.com. And it's available on all, all the podcast platforms. There's one called Morning, about the morning minutes practice. There's one called Pause, P-A-U-S-E, about how to do ultradian rhythm breaks. And there's one called Sleep, which is about, um, the nighttime wind down. And uh, I have more about these things available on my websites and blogs, but I would encourage anybody who wants to learn those skills of the healthy deviant to begin there. And then notice how doing those simple renegade rituals affects your ability to make other healthy, self-respecting, self-preserving choices. That's wonderful. And we'll link that up in the show notes, those podcast episodes. So if people want to go check that out, it'll be easy to do so. And I love what you said early on, just kind of tying back our earlier previous conversation that none of these take a significant amount of monetary investment or really even time. I mean, three minutes, you know, because I know there's a lot of people out there, there are single moms, there's busy people are trying to get out the door, but take the three minutes for yourself in the morning and a couple minutes during the day. And you'll find that you're actually probably more productive when you take the break versus yes. plowing through and working that 10, 11, 12 hour day, right? Science says, yes, science, all of the data suggests that taking the breaks actually does help you get more done. And it's much easier said than done, particularly if you're yeah. working in an environment on a sales floor or in a factory where those breaks are just not happening. But um, a lot of the research has been done by the military, like the US Department of Defense has studied ultradian rhythms because they're keenly interested in knowing how long you can get people to do things before you need to have them take a break or before they start to have accidents and make errors that can be life-threatening and expensive and generally um, very bad in terms of their outcomes. Um, so I wanna to emphasize too that fundamentally what I'm really interested in getting people to do is notice that 
when you choose to do something as simple as take the first three minutes of your day, you will run into challenges and problems doing that because it's not considered normal. Taking breaks isn't considered normal. Slowing down at the end of the day rather than staying, trying to stay ramped up until the very last minute, just get more things done until the end of the day. All of that is gonna take you out of the sphere of normalcy as it's, as it's defined by our current culture. And so you'll run into all of the hitches you'll run into also trying to do things like change the way you eat or move or manage your stress or sleep. But because these things don't carry the same charge as you know, being a perfect eater does, <laughs> you, start to, you start to relate differently to these things. And I think a lot of people find they're easier places to start. And once you get started, then other healthy choices really do come more easily too. I totally agree with that. And it, it really, it just, some of the things you said reminded me of when my kids were little and they would have like the snack break at school yes. and the school would give them like a juice box and some Teddy grams or a juice <laughs> box and what are they called? Fruit snacks. And I would be like, what kind of snack is that? That's not a snack. <laughs> that's like, that's sugar the kids up so they can focus. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I know. Where's the protein? Where's the healthy fat? Where are the phytonutrients? But at least they were getting breaks. And it's funny, you should say that I was, I have a, a yoga mat that I unroll on the floor of my office um, to lie down and take my ultradian rhythm breaks when I start to feel that it's time. And I was lying down on the other day and I was like, God, this is just like lying down on one of those little nap mats I used to have in kindergarten. I, again, you know, I'm in my early fifties now and I don't, they don't do this anymore in a lot of schools. But when I was a little kid, they knew kids needed breaks and they, you know, I think they gave us milk back in the day and they had us lie down on our little nap mat and we would have quiet time. And whether you went to sleep or not, it didn't matter. Everyone was quiet for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then we got back up and we did the next activity. And I don't know, that would be a norm I would love to institute in adult life as well as in children with schools, because, um, you know, even the way we design school breaks is kind of dissipated now. We used to have recess and you'd have music class and you'd have different types of classes throughout the day. And they got rid of all of those things. It's just like all math and you know remembering dates and things that are so hard on your brain and no breaks at all, no relief. And then we wonder, why kids are having mood disorders and you know energy problems and falling asleep at their desks and becoming anxious. And I think that we're, we're going to have to relearn how to live and we're gonna have to re-educate ourselves and our educators. Um, I will say happily, I've given a few talks at mindfulness conferences where there are folks from leadership and education, the New York City public school system, for example, even here in the Minneapolis area, some um, public school officials who've been like, wow, it would be so great if we could get this into the curriculum and get kids to start, you know, and teachers to start doing things differently. I am 100% on board with that and anything I can do to help support educators and making changes in the way we are um, working with kids and young adults, college, same problem, man, college is its own trial, yeah. uh, medical yes. school. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> so we have our work cut out for us, but there's room for healthy deviance. I think in all of these different layers and nooks and crannies of our world. And we do need to find each other first and foremost, and begin advocating for ourselves and each other in ways that change the system that don't just put more pressure on us individually to figure out what is basically a very shared, widely experienced set of maladies. I think once individually, we all start to feel that and realize the benefit, feel it for ourselves, then we can start to create 
you know, it's like those grassroots grassroots movements and the demand, and then we will change the system because there'd be more of us that are just demanding it, right? Yes. It's Um, funny, you should say that, it's interesting. I was talking about, well, in Healthy Deviant You, you know, we work through these different phases, um, you know, amplified awareness, preemptive repair, reclaiming your mojo and so on. But the final phase is this be the change phase. And that's really about stepping into your own Healthy Deviant identity and building Healthy Deviant community around you for your own sake, as well as the sake of others. And I think most people, by the time they get to that fourth phase, they have reclaimed their own energy and vitality and they're feeling better than they felt in years. The first thing that they want to do is help others. The first thing that they want to do when they get to that point is make it easier for people around them. Some of it is self-interest. Like I want to live around more healthy, happy people. <laughs> like mm-hmm. let, me, let me see what I can do to make that happen. And part of it is I think a desire to pay it forward and, and help other people experience the benefits that we've experienced. It's no fun to be the only healthy, happy person in your community. It's just really hard because you spend a lot of time and energy trying to help sick people get through unendurable situations. And I think that be the change phase, whether you get it from coming through a healthy deviant you type experience, or you get it from learning things the hard way in your own life, figuring it out and wanting to make it easier for other people, that's where the magic is gonna happen. And I really hope for our country's sake and our world's sake, we begin to take that on as our next Um, frontier of health improvement, not just public health initiatives of vaccinations and screenings and things like that, all of which are important in their own right, but really taking on how do we make it easier to be a healthier, happier person in this world that we all share? Well, and I wonder, um, you know, just thinking about like judgment and non-judgment and, you know, the inner critic inside all of us, how do you, um, or what advice do you give to people to kind of foster that non-judgment, whether it's around, I'm a healthy deviant and I'm judging you because you're so unhealthy or vice versa, right? Because it yes. can go, it can come from all sides. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. You, you get called an elitist if you're pursuing and making these choices, you know, it's a privilege and it is. Um, but it's really easy to have people tell you that, you know, there's something inherently wrong with you caring about your health and making it a priority. There's that level. And absolutely healthy people have a tendency to not remember how difficult it was for them to get here and then to lay blame and judgment and shame on people who haven't yet figured it out. I mean, one thing is I often say, you know, the skills of the healthy deviant are the survival skills of the new era. And if you are not a healthy person yet, it's probably just because you haven't yet learned and mastered and practiced these skills, but you can. And if you are a healthy, happy, sustainably healthy, happy person, it's probably because you have managed to figure it out. You might've had a lot of advantages that helped in that, but that's really what separates people are the, are the skill sets and the perspectives. And those can be acquired by you know determination and it takes some effort and time for sure. The thing that I, there's actually um, one of the skills actually of healthy deviance is I call it non-judging self-observation or NJSO. <laughs> Everything has an acronym. Unhealthy default reality is the UDR and so on. But non-judging self-observation right now, I feel that in the health and fitness media is taking the form of things like body positivity or the I-way movement or um, you know, just like self-love and self-approval. That's good, that's a start, but I think we have to broaden our perspective and to really cement 
non-judging self-observation and non-judging observation of others. I use a, um, a graphic, a couple, a series of graphics in my book that show how we've been encouraged to look at our problems like they're just ours alone. And it's almost like you're standing in front of a billboard um, that's this close to your face. And what media puts in front of you and our society puts in front of you is like, my problems, you know, what is wrong with me? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got a weight problem. I got headaches. My hair is falling out. My skin is broken out. I got these problems, right? I'm low energy. I'm depressed. A whole litany on that billboard. What I can't see until I'm willing to like step a little to the side and look behind the billboard, I call it seeing the forest for the trees, the what actually produced all of the problems that we're all experiencing are the circumstances that we've been living with. So, you know, 2.5 million years of human history and programming of our bodies, genetic, the human genome is what it is. And it came out of a hunter gatherer reality. Then we have the agricultural revolution where suddenly instead of going hunting and gathering and being, you know, following the cycles of light and dark and natural things, we start domesticating plants and animals and having surpluses and our whole society changes. We move into cities and towns and that launches the industrial revolution. Now we've got, you know, automation and machines and then that produces the technological revolution and computers and push button and everybody has appliances for everything and processed food galore. Our whole society changes, right? And we have the digital revolution with these things. This is only <laughs> like 25 years that we've had this stuff. And, you know, all of the other maladies that come along with it, but 25 years, no, that is not enough time to figure out how to live in the way that we are asking people to live. Less time to think, less time to recover, more pressure to acquire goods and services and keep up with the Joneses. Wildly unrealistic expectations of how we're supposed to look coming through these devices at all times. So all of those circumstances set us up for what's known as evolutionary mismatch. And they produce the circumstances of our society, which I call the unhealthy default reality. And now you can see this whole world of experiences leading up to this moment that have produced what you're thinking of as your problems, except they're everybody's problems because those circumstances, those conditions are universal. And not just in our country anymore, but like I said, all the places we've exported Western standards and technologies and preferences for things like fast food and you know soft drinks and 150 some pounds of sugar a year per person. So when it comes to judging, if you've managed to, you know, first of all, a lot of people who are supposedly healthy are still obsessively looking at this billboard and they spend their entire lives trying to like perfect themselves. Meanwhile, you know, they're kind of husks. <laughs> it's like, there's nothing else going on. Like that's all they do all day long. It's like present themselves as healthy, happy people, right? But I think for me, where I started relaxing my judgment of self and others was when I observed those conditions. When I learned enough about the history of my own humanity and our shared reality to recognize that you can't just intervene over and over and over again at the level of a bazillion people's my problems. We have to start addressing them as our shared problems and helping each other to sort out those conditions, intervening at the level of our relationship with our unhealthy culture, rather than intervening repeatedly at the level of willpower and you know standards that are unachievable. What's wrong with me is a loser question. I'm interested in what is brilliant about your body that you could get into agreement and help it support 
the energy level and vitality level and enthusiasm level that you would like to have. Because I believe that that's possible. And again, back to the bigger picture, what would it be like to live in a world where most people were actually healthy and happy most of the time? What kind of problems? Wouldn't it be incredible? Yes. Yeah. And I hope we can all see that in our lifetime, right? Oh man, me too. (laughs) Me too. Even a majority, you know, to get to 51% of people thriving. I was talking with my friend, Brian Johnson of Optimize, um, who just started a wonderful new heroic benefit uh, organization. And that is their goal is to help the majority, like to get 50 or 61, I can't remember what them, but the majority of people thriving by the year, I don't know what it is, 2030 or something. It's a very aggressive goal. I would just like to see us making headway instead of going the wrong direction, which is where we've been for the past 30 or 40 years is a, you know, an aggressive decline in our resilience and vitality. And we can turn that around anytime. I I like to think it's now, you know, the book I hope will mark a turning point in the way we're thinking about this and talking about it, but it's early days. So the more the merrier, and that's part of the third point in the Healthy Deviant Manifesto is make it a party. I think we have to make it yes. more fun and make it more welcoming and make it more accessible. And let's have a good time getting healthy and happy. So other people actually want to come along and do it this way <laughs> instead of Absolutely. running scared. Yeah. I love that. I couldn't agree more because I think sometimes we, because of what we've been fed in the media, it's, oh, it's hard. Oh, you have to give that up. You know, I don't like when people say, oh, I can't eat that. No, I choose to eat other things that make me feel good. Yeah. It's not about what I can't eat. It's not deprivation. You're making a conscious choice because you want to, yeah. because you want to eat the food or you want to go to sleep early or you want to not binge watch Netflix for 21 days straight <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, everything in moderation, like you said. Um, well, I just it, love everything you said. And it oh, is possible okay. to be healthy and have fun, Right. We need to show people that because people think being healthy is no fun. And that's not true. That is exactly more fun now than I did way back in my 20s to a certain extent. Right. Well, absolutely. And how fun is it to be going into the medical system on a regular basis? How fun is it to be in waiting rooms and having procedures done and being prescribed things and having to go through the drive through at CVS to get one more round of drugs? How fun is it to spend all of your money on, you know, trying to cope? as opposed to like having a ton of energy and vitality. I mean, I I think that's kind of one of the best kept secrets about health. Unfortunately, I mean, the media tends to like emphasize the appearance of health and fitness. And we have these, you know, six pack, tan, whatever, like that, that model is so irrelevant to most people to the point of just being kind of, I think it's its own obstacle at this point. But yeah, I mean, anyone who has gotten healthier knows how rewarding and fun it is to have the energy and the enthusiasm and the clarity, like how much better your brain works. And then to be able to take on things that you want to do and experience and have everything you need to enjoy them. But it's that process of what's perceived as self-denial and misery and having to have discipline and self-control. Remember that all of what we're asking people to do We're asking them to do those difficult things in the context of already depleted systems, difficult environments that aren't supported for those choices, having it be expensive and inconvenient and hard. So you take a bunch of exhausted people, put them in a difficult situation, and then ask them to make difficult choices that are like, it's a setup for failure. 
That's the vicious cycle of the unhealthy default reality. Basically, wear people out and then ask them to do something tough. This is not, doesn't feel fun to them then, you know? Right. And then wonder why, you know, a thousand, how many, what is it? 90% of people go on diets and they see themselves as failing. I think that largely the whole diet culture has failed them. But um, that's a lot of why, you know, like I said, I don't start, obviously nutrition and exercise and all of that matters. I can tell you, eat mostly whole foods most of the time. That is my dietary philosophy, but it's easier said than done. And if you go out trying to do that without the right skills and in an environment that it's not supported and you're already feeling stressed out and tired and hungry because your blood sugar's imbalanced and all you want is a donut, it's a setup for failure. I don't want to see people failing. So I say, start with the morning minutes, start with ultradian rhythm breaks, start with the nighttime wind down and begin noticing your own desires and then make it easier by learning some of the skills of a healthy person. And that's what we're all here trying to help each other learn. You know, it just, it just takes a little bit longer than, uh, you know, 10 pounds in 10 days, which is what the new year's, you know, machine keeps turning out. Absolutely. Yeah. Pilar, you've provided so much insight and ideas throughout this conversation. And we highly encourage everyone to read the book, of course. Um, But we love leaving our listeners with just a couple of tips that they can, you know, immediately implement into their life this week that would have the biggest impact. And I know, obviously, the morning minutes and um, all the things you just talked about are, are huge. Um, but for someone out there that's just feeling super overwhelmed by everything that they're just digesting during this conversation, yeah, what do you recommend? Well, there's an, uh, one thing I would recommend <clears throat> is a, a, a sort of turn off the world challenge. And by this, I mean, literally turn off all of the electronics in your environment, turn off all of the, the media that you have streaming around you. Turn off any noise that's in your environment, like that's playing, even music that you enjoy. Just turn off everything or get yourself outside without any of your devices. Just for five minutes, just be yourself in your human body with your feet on the ground or your back lying down on the floor and notice what it feels like to just be yourself. And don't be surprised if what comes up is an addictive tendency to reach for your phone or if you can't even imagine letting it go. Notice if suddenly thoughts and feelings that you don't know what to do with kind of come up. Don't worry about sorting all of that out, but notice how unusual it is to spend even five minutes unplugged from stuff and unplugged from the urgency of accomplishing anything. Notice what a rare, unusual, freakishly weird experience that is without conversation, without anything coming in. Just who are you in that five minutes? That is a person it would be really cool for you to become more acquainted with. And that experience of your own autonomy, the sovereignty of your human self, realizing that you have the right to be here on the planet in this time and space without accomplishing anything or consuming anything or producing anything or fixing anything. Just being for five minutes in an unplugged situation is often um, enough to help people realize that they have a very strong desire to feel more alive. And that desire, I think, is a calling. And when you start to feel the calling of returning to your own human self, listen. <laughs> Follow I love, it. I love that. Um, Absolutely and, love that. And I, I think that um, I love how you said that you don't have to be doing, producing, like, because I think it's in our nature that we feel like we 
you know, maybe you're out on a walk, but you're listening to someone else's podcast or like you're talking to a friend or whatever it is, like always trying to get in whatever you need to get in throughout the day. So I really love the turn off the world challenge. And, you know, Stephanie and I will talk about it further, but I'd love to, you know, challenge our listeners to give it a try. Yeah. And report back on what happens. Yeah. I want to just respond to one thing you said, Marty, because it's so, it's such a great, um, it's such a great opportunity to notice this, that we say, you know, it's in our nature to do this, to multitask and to distract and to produce and to feel the next thing and the next thing. I don't know that it is in our nature. I think what it is, is it's the nature of the unhealthy default reality. It is the nature of our society to make us feel that that is normal and that what I'm suggesting you do is abnormal. But remember our central nervous system, like our brain, our spine, everything in our system that has us responding to reality, the nature of the reality it was formed in was a much simpler time and space where we went hours sometimes without talking to other people because we were working on, you know, tracking animals. We were, you know, harvesting tubers. And when we did chat, we were chatting around shared experiences. Like how do we get this, you know, debris hut or whatever our shelter was at the time up? How do we find the berries that are out wherever they are? How do we comfort each other? And how do we heal each other? Those were the conversations, and it was a gossip, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> like, but we were talking about things that were all shared universal experiences that all made sense to us, not talking about world news that was happening on the other side of the planet, not talking about a conspiracy theory, not talking about our fears and our anxieties of things that might never, ever happen. And so I think that while it might be our nature to be always interested in what's going on around us. I don't think it's our nature to feel that we should or have to respond to all of it all the time. And our, the, the complexity of our modern technological culture has become, and it's accelerating, so complicated that I believe it is injurious. It is damaging to us to, to just present ourselves to it day in and day out without a recovery break or without a rest. So um, even if it's five minutes, you might be shocked at how unnatural it feels. And a lot of people will freak out and not be able to do it. I predict this. If you ask people to report back, like invite the fa- the so-called failed experiments to go first, like who tried it and couldn't pull it off. <laughs> right. And, and it's, and it's not a failure really. It's, it's a learning process, right? That's exactly And you're right. absolutely right. It's not in our nature. It's in our programming. Yes. I love that's I love what you were saying because it's, when you were talking about it, Pilar, I said, okay, I was already planning to take my ultradian rhythm break after this, after this um, recording and go outside on my walk with my dog. But I always have a podcast on or I'm listening to a book I'm reading on Audible or yep. whatever it is. I am gonna leave the phone at home. Yes. I committed to doing that today. So I'll let you know. Back. It, it's let us gonna, know it's how gonna it be more than five minutes. I mean, I normally do a 20 or 30 minute walk this time of day. Perfect. So it's really a, a stretch for me. So and notice, Stephanie, I would love to hear back what comes up when you don't have more stuff coming in. I think what you'll find mm-hmm. is that your body mind starts to process what's already in there. And I bet you. I don't know, dollars to spinach. I was going to say dollars to donuts, but I bet, you, <laughs> I bet you, you have at least one aha, or you get a flood of ideas of things that you could do with what you have rather than consuming more and more. 
and you might come into contact with insights and feelings and thoughts that, um, that I bet you will find more rich than the things that you would have just put in. I mean, I love learning. Continuous growth and learning is one of the nonconformist competencies of healthy deviance. And some of that is definitely learning things from the outside world, but it's also learning from observation of what happens within your own body mind. So I can't wait to hear how your walk goes. That's gonna be really fun. Yeah, you'll have to report back. I will definitely, I will definitely report back. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so Pilar, this has been a wonderful conversation. We've loved having you. Um, I feel like we could just keep chatting away here, but I want to be conscious of your time. So as we wrap up this conversation, we love to ask all of our guests, what does the art of living well mean to you? Hmm. Well, that's, uh, yes, I've talked a lot about that in the past hour or so, but for me, the art of living well means illuminating from myself the best that is within me and available to me in this lifetime. And a lot of that is, um, for me, living my life at my healthiest and most conscious. Um, so ultimately, I would say, yeah, living according to what brings me satisfaction. And that for me is, um, yeah, com combination of my feeling my best and giving my best gifts. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. My yes. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for helping to spread the healthy deviant gospel and encourage healthy deviants around you and in your midst. And, you know, continuing to challenge the norms of a society that is, is not producing great results for us or for our planet uh, or our communities of fellow human beings. So we can change it. And I think that uh, the, the, the fun and challenging work is just beginning. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we will link everything up in the show notes that we talked about today. Thank you. And we wish you a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you yep. so much. Take care, Have you guys. Have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well.